Hymn number 313, Brother Jeff announced and delighted are we to make mark of that and use that at the appropriate time in our service this evening. It certainly is good, as Gary just mentioned, for us to be able to assemble and to gather in the way that we are. The peacefulness of this hour, the opportunity and privilege that comes along with worship, isn't it still an amazing reflection that Jesus said, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. And yet you and I find that a delightful enterprise. It's not an arduous chore. And so tonight as we assemble and study a portion of the Word of God for this portion of our worship time, I trust that we'll turn our attention to Psalm 103. Brother Wendell read just a few moments ago from the opening few verses of, of that particular psalm, Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. And maybe these introductory thoughts will prompt us for what will be the major thoughts that we'll focus on throughout the remainder of the lesson tonight. In many ways, Psalm 103 is a fine masterpiece indeed. I suppose that might be said about virtually any chapter of the Bible, but yet there's something so rich, so touching, so compelling about the language used by the Holy Spirit on this occasion. We find the psalmist in a position in which he pours forth the very being of his soul in thanksgiving to God for the blessings, the benefits, and the wonderful things he had enjoyed. I'm sure many of us feel the same way. Many times we in reflection look back and see what God has brought us through, allowing us to enjoy, and yet we look about us and see others not as blessed as we. We too feel overwhelmed to say thank you. In many ways that seemingly occupies much of Psalm 103. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide before us, there is though a question. You may have noted in the reading that it begins like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. What does it mean to bless the Lord? What is involved in a statement like that one? I suspect we often think of God's blessing us. How do you and I bless Him? That'll be one of the matters we'll discuss this evening. And in so doing, we will then look at those remaining verses up through verse 5. It is with that in mind that we've prepared ourselves to push forward. And so let's do a little word study at the outset and appreciate what these terms are instructing us to do and what mindset they bring before us. It is seemingly a non-ending and also a blessing to think about the words of the Bible. We've often noted that the Holy Scriptures themselves consist of over 31,100 verses. And then when you count the number of words in all those verses, they number well over 2 million. Every word is inspired of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 Every word carries the very thrust and meaning the Holy Spirit intended. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6 And so every word is exactly what the Holy Spirit had in mind. It is with that in mind I would invite you to notice that word bless that occurs in verses 1 and 2 is exactly the same Hebrew word that in other places is rendered to kneel. K-N-E-E-L we're aware of the fact that in many cases of the Holy Scriptures, one or other individuals in a position of respect, in a position of adoration to another, would kneel before that other individual. Again, this same word that's rendered blessed carries that kind of idea. It thus is a statement of 
the respect you and I would have for God, the adoration, the opportunity to praise and adore His name. In many ways, then, that would be a fair appreciation of the thrust of those two words. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. That's a statement of necessary praise on your part and mine for the great Creator of all. You'll notice that those statements naturally are contrasted to something else. It did occur in verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. If one praises God, then he does not forget what God has done. But on the other hand, isn't it seemingly a very strong tendency to forget what God has done? Your life and mine can seemingly be so busy. It's filled from early morning till late at night with various and sundry activities, and that busyness can inch God out of the picture. And maybe it's a strong temptation in one way or another, at least indirectly, to forget about the benefits of God. So noteworthy is that thought that several examples might be in order. I found it a bit interesting how many times the Bible says various of God's own people forgot Him. We might well begin that saga in Psalm 106, verse 21, only three chapters forward from where we are this evening. In that marvelous re reflection of the children of Israel, it expressly says they forgot God and His works. Despite what they had seen at the Red Sea, despite what they had seen in the plagues of Egypt, despite what they had seen in His daily provision, the text says they forgot Him. You'll notice in Psalm 78, verse 11, on another occasion, again descriptive of the children of Israel, it again says they forget Him. You and I might again appreciate the fact that if they forgot Him, given what they had seen, isn't it possible that you and I could forget Him in some way today? The children of Israel, however, weren't the only ones guilty of that short memory. Look at the various people among the later Old Testament individuals. You and I might notice, after the, after the kingdom split, there was a northern and a southern kingdom. What did Hosea have to say in Hosea 8.14 with respect to the northern kingdom? Didn't it expressly say, Israel hath forgotten her maker? What a sad statement. All those years of God's protection and provision, and yet the words of God through Hosea, they forgot their maker. You'll notice furthermore, we could make mention of the people of the southern kingdom fared little better. Isaiah expressly in Isaiah 17, 11 said that here, the southern kingdom, the people of Judah, they too forgot God. Jeremiah, perhaps in one of the most memorable statements about this matter of forgetting, put it like this in Jeremiah 2, 32. Can a maid forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people hath forgotten me days without number. You and I know well that as a bride prepares for her wedding day, she will adorn herself in the prettiest fashion with which she's capable. And yet God here says that He, of course, as the bridegroom, was married into Israel and she had forgotten Him. Almost unbelievable, isn't it? And you and I know well that that character of forgetfulness on the part of Israel was her doom on so many occasions. It may be in light of those things that Ezekiel looked back in reflection like this. In Ezekiel 23, 35, 
that prophet in the days when they were in captivity said that one of the main reasons as to why you find yourself in this position is as you might now guess, they forgot God. It seems as though many of the prophets then highlighted the short-term memory of Israel, the sad statement of their forgetting of God. The question just beneath that turns the attention centuries later to you and to me. If those people could forget God, given what they had seen, given the nature of the prophets right in their midst, isn't it true we could forget God today? I think we all know in the honesty of our heart that answer is yes. No wonder as you come to the bottom of that slide that that possibility is highlighted for us in 2 Peter 1. In the midst of those Christian graces and highlighting the character of what they mean in life, it begins in verse 5 in words like this. Beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But notice this. He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Notice that was spoken, of course, to individuals in this present last days and they'd forgotten something. It is for sure that you and I could be guilty of forgetting, maybe in parallel way to what they did in the long ago. May I then submit to you Psalm 103 answers this pressing need to remember and it answers this pressing need to encourage us to bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. One final thought comes from the language employed there in verse 1. Did you notice how interesting the statement was made, all that is within me? That does imply and remind us, doesn't it, that God demands the full service that you and I can render to Him. He doesn't accept partial service. He doesn't accept half-hearted service. It is then no wonder that that kind of statement challenges us in so many ways not unlike these. In Psalm 119, verse number 2, we're told there expressly that it is with all the heart that we are to direct our service to God. God does deserve the full expression of what is your heart and mind's dictation. How was it our Lord placed it in Mark chapter 12, verse 30? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. A fourfold completeness and a fourfold entirety is thus expressed on that occasion. Is it any wonder then that here the psalmist even affirmed it in the long ago, all that is within me. At this point, how then does verse number 2 conclude? We've just highlighted previously the impression that's left with us to praise God, to honor Him, to adore Him appropriately. But then it says, forget not all His benefits. When you and I pray to Him and we offer praise to His name, may we then be careful not to forget the benefits He's extended to us. And that leads to the question, well, what are these benefits? to which the psalmist gave expression. What are the benefits then mentioned at the close of verse 2? Thankfully, as Brother Wendell read it a moment ago, verses 3, 4, and 5 list several of these benefits 
And let's use the remainder of our time to cast a spotlight on them one by one and see if they don't remind us about the pressing need to thank God for all these things. Let's begin like this. These benefits highlighted especially, again, begin in verse 3. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. Immediately at the forefront of the statements of the psalmist, the need to bless and praise the name of God for the avenue of forgiveness. What a pitiful and sorry sinner I am. And I'm sure you feel the same about yourself. There are times when thoughts are not as they ought to be, and I leave undone things that ought to be done. And I'm sure, again, you feel the same about yourself. Isn't it lovely? Isn't it grand and ever so wonderful that we serve a God who is a God of forgiveness? Let's think about that more carefully using the language of verse number 3. That word who is a pronoun that has reference back to the word God, the Lord, the one that is being praised and the one that's being blessed. And you and I are thus encouraged to bless the name of God who forgives all our iniquities. I've asked you to think about the development of those thoughts like this. That word forgive literally means to pardon. We're accustomed to thinking of what that suggests. An individual who finds him or herself in a position of guilt based on something done. Then to be pardoned is to have that error wiped away. Completely removed as if it never occurred. We serve a God who doesn't just forgive. He forgets along with it. He doesn't hold that guilt over us again like a club over our head. He forgives all our iniquities. That kind of forgiveness is highlighted in language that's found later in this same chapter. It's such a picturesque version to look at verse number 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. As you can tell, the psalmist, in thinking about the matter of forgiveness, here easily asserted his own guilt by virtue of transgression, but then he said that he served a God who removes those transgressions as far as the east is from the west. You and I still serve the same God who changes not, the God who is excited and thrilled to forgive those who approach Him correctly. You'll notice that as far as the east is from the west... If you imagine drawing a number line, that literally is one complete direction to the other, 180 degrees, if you will. And in so doing, isn't it wonderful to think of God's forgiveness being that complete? It is rather interesting to notice that word all that also occurs in that passage. It's not that He forgives forgive some transgressions. It says, "...who forgiveth all thine iniquities." As you and I peruse the sacred scriptures, we find that the blood of Jesus Christ is powerfully able to forgive any and every sin of any individual that approaches God. It's not that some sins are so heinous. It's not that some sins are so severe that Christ's blood cannot cleanse them no matter what the person does. We can rest assured that every single sin is in fact forgivable. You'll notice in 1 John 2 verse 2, as John considered and wrote about these very matters, he reminded us on that occasion so powerfully 
that the blood of Christ cleanseth us from all sin. Might I invite you to think about this implication of those matters. David appears to be the writer of the psalm that's before us tonight. It appears David is the author of Psalm 103. If that be the case, you're well aware of some of those episodes in the very life of David. In 2 Samuel 11, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. Later in that same chapter, he committed murder by putting Uriah to death. In that same chapter, he was guilty of promoting drunkenness, not only among the servants, but attended among Uriah as well. David guilty of forgetting God in that chapter. Isn't it amazing that as you read through 2 Samuel 11, God's name isn't there anywhere. In the midst of a man committing adultery, maybe we're not surprised. In the midst in the life of a man given to drunkenness, maybe we're not shocked. In the midst of a man guilty of murder, maybe it comes as no surprise. Do you begin to see with me what can happen if we forget God? But you'll notice in the next chapter, Nathan mentions the name of God again. In that famous record and story, Thou art the man, David, he brings to mind the very character of the God against whom David had sinned. And in so doing, it is to now be apprised of the fact that in this very passage, David was so thankful for God's forgiveness. Psalm 51 is a magnificent statement of David's attempt to be forgiven. He approached God, listing those sins he had committed. He besought God to look deeply into his heart and forgive him of anything that stood between him and God. And he made a vow that he would then, from that day forward, proceed in faithful obedience to all that God had affirmed. As we think of then the forgiveness David enjoyed, what about the forgiveness you and I enjoy? Think about the things that you've done in life. And might I be quick to say that if you have obtained God's forgiveness, He doesn't remember them, though you might. Isn't that amazing? Forgiveness. Perhaps one final thought. So often the New Testament helps us not to forget that that forgiveness is a very critical matter. In Ephesians 1 verse 7, the blood of Christ cleanses us appropriately, mentioned almost verbatim in Colossians 1 verse 14. As that attribute of forgiveness is set before us, this is only the first in the listing before us tonight. What else is listed also in this same passage? Verse number 3, Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Let's turn our attention to that statement as we come to the bottom of this slide tonight. Who healeth all thy diseases. Let's develop that thought perhaps like this. To the people of Israel, God had very clearly stated a number of promises in previous eras as it related to their healthfulness. He specifically told them in Exodus 15, 26, as well as Deuteronomy 7, that He would not put upon them any of the diseases that the Egyptians had. The people of Israel would be protected. It's as if God would put a boundary about them and they would not be subject to those terrible atrocities by virtue of disease that had come the way of the Egyptians. Not only that, it might be quick to say that even the psalmist found himself from time to time suffering from various ailments and various diseases. And according to these descriptions, some of them were fairly severe. In Psalm 38, 7, you'll notice the loathsome way in which the description is found. 
in Psalm 41.8, not too many chapters thereafter, we find another statement of grief relative to these diseases. It is in the midst of all of that we find that bottom statement. God's promise to ancient Israel was truly remarkable. It was really amazing. The healthfulness that was descriptive of these children of Israel so long as they obeyed God was truly fascinating. It is in light of them, might I invite you to cast the spotlight somewhat more forward to now. We find a number of examples in the Scriptures when the power of God was expressly made forth to heal those that were sick. There's that famous example of Hezekiah found in Isaiah 38 as well as 2 Kings 20. And it was on that occasion, here was a man, and the prophet Isaiah expressly came to him and said, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Isaiah was afflicted with a serious boil, and it erupted to the point that he would soon cause his death. Hezekiah prayed unto God fervently, and God blessed him with 15 more years of life. God saw fit to then extend and heal that matter before him. And that's just one of so many others. How often in the New Testament was there some ailment and the Lord miraculously healed that man? We remember there was blindness, there was lameness, there was characteristics of various and sundry other paralytic diseases, and Jesus was able to cast them out and take care of those. We begin to see that health was under the control of the God of heaven. He was able to make well. He was able to cast aside illness and sickness. Today, may we be quick to say that if we enjoy good health, may we not cease to thank God for it. May we be earnest and devoted to thank God for the degree of that health He's given us. For you'll notice that healthfulness is a grand blessing and it is something we ought not forget. It truly is a benefit that might be included in this list of Psalm 103, verse number 3. Perhaps one final thought along that line. It does again say in verse number 3, Who healeth all thy diseases. We do know that there are occasions when illness, we no longer live in that miraculous age that they did. Maybe our illness does not find healing. Maybe that particular matter, in fact, progresses and advances. But again, may we not forget that with good health, the source must be attributed to the God who gives it. If our life is as it should be, if we are in the confines, friendly and safe of the hands of our Master, even in death we have reason to celebrate, and even in death we have reason to rejoice. For in fact, a place of comfort awaits those that are the faithful. Luke 16, verses 19 and following. It might well be that we're prepared for the third listing in this inspired expression. Verse number 4. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. I would invite you to look at some of the middle statements on that slide. Literally the emphasis from that ancient Hebrew expression is this. A matter to recover from danger or difficulty. May I suggest that David would well have been apprised of what that means. His life had been threatened so many times from Saul, from Absalom, from others alike. David could nonetheless rejoice in the fact God had recovered him from all of those dangers. He had preserved him and protected him through every one of them. But it does seem very clear 
that in the ultimate sense, there's a far-reaching impact from a passage like that one and one that you and I can readily apply to our life today. Think about the statement of that expression in relation to eternity. Who redeemeth thy life from destruction. There is a destruction awaiting the unfaithful and the, and the disobedient. There is a casting into Gehenna, that place known as hell, that awaits those who are not covered by the blood of Christ. And yet to those who are the faithful, how sweet it is to consider of being redeemed from destruction. To be redeemed is to be purchased back, to be bought back. We know what it means to redeem a coupon. We exchange the coupon in return for its value. So too here, you and I are said to be in a position to experience redemption from destruction. We know well who made that redemption available. We're redeemed by the blood of Christ, Ephesians 1.7. It is He who went to the cross and thereby you and I can enjoy salvation. You'll notice with me that this statement it's God through Him that you and I are able to appreciate redemption from that matter of destruction. The terror that comes in verses like 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7, 8, and 9, perhaps bring us directly back to a passage in the Old Testament like this one. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. There is flaming fire to be poured forth, showered upon, if you will, those that have not obeyed the gospel, those that do not know God, and yet in a passage like this one, You'll notice it's God who's redeemed the life of those from destruction. You and I, of course, wish to be in this number and not those that meet that vengeance of the Lord. Perhaps in sweetness that brings us directly to passages like Jude 23. One chapter book near the close of the New Testament. You and I are urged to snatch from the fires those who are headed to a place to receive that vengeance. And yet the teaching of the gospel, the power and majesty of passages like this one allow us to snatch them out of the fire. We can hope then that God will allow us to touch the lives of individuals and bring them to know this same message of redemption. It does take us to that next part in that same verse though. It says there, "...who crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies." Let's begin that thought from the bottom of this slide. Crowneth thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. I found it a bit intriguing to think about the verb that's used on that occasion. To crown thee. Have you ever thought that this is a passage that describes the faithful as having been crowned by God? God has crowned you and I, and we know that that word crown means to adore with dignity, to present with great respect. And in that sense, God truly has lavished upon us some remarkable things. He has crowned you and me with some special attributes. Let's look at what those are. Isn't it a tremendous honor to be a recipient of what happened at Golgotha? When that blood of Christ flowed from His body that day, 
purchasing the church, Acts 20, 28, making ready the power to cleanse any and all sins to those that will approach God correctly and appropriately. And yet, you and I are the recipients of being called sons of God, Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6. We are blessed to be able to be called a Christian, Acts eleven twenty six. Those names are not just reserved for anybody. Furthermore, you and I are blessed to be called saints. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 1 and 2. We're blessed to be called amongst the number who are the redeemed of God, those who are recognized among the firstborn. Hebrews 12, verse 22. Those descriptive names do show us just how honored we are to be a member of God's family. It seems the psalmist of old appreciated how sweet that was. May we ask, since that was before Jesus died, how much sweeter is it today? How much more blessed are we than He was? Oh, how we ought never forget His benefits. How ought we never, in fact, to allow those to slide far from our mind to ever be ready to bless His holy name? I invited you to think with me along those lines as you look at verses 17 and 18 of the same Psalm 103. Later in this same chapter, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, Upon them that fear Him and His righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep His covenant and to those that remember His commandments to do them. Isn't it amazing that God's mercy from everlasting to everlasting only on certain ones, those that keep His covenant, those that do His bidding. And I trust tonight that we strive to be in that number. And if so, notice how great God's mercy is to you and me. If there was, it was only possible to experience even a fleeting second of the horror of hell, I believe we'd all have a deeper and richer appreciation of just how great His mercy is to save me from a place like that, to keep me from a place like that, to make provision such that I need not go to a place like that. And yet we find here from everlasting to everlasting, God's mercy is poured out upon those that do His will, that keep His covenant, that follow His commandments. You did notice with me the seriousness of obedience in that. Intent wasn't sufficient, was it? Maybe one last comment in light of that one takes us to verse number 8 of this same chapter. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Can't you and I be thankful for God's long-suffering character? I believe if you and I were in position as He, and we could look down upon the children of men, Psalm 14, verses 1 and 2, and see the evil, the atrocities, the wickedness in such abundance, we probably would have destroyed this earth a long, long time ago. But yet God is merciful. He is long-suffering, 2 Peter 3.15. And that long-suffering character is highlighted in passages like this. No wonder it does bring us then to verse number 5, the closing verse to our studies this evening. This same God, it says, satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagle's. I would invite you to begin that appreciation with an idea of what the words mean. The very Hebrew words that find themselves in back of that expression mean this. The idea relates to the nourishment and furthermore the satisfaction that it brings. 
who among us doesn't enjoy a fine meal? Who among us, in fact, at times doesn't feel so thankful to sit in front of a tremendous abundant spread that's so bountiful? Sometimes at Thanksgiving, we are so blessed with an abundant table, and sometimes we eat more than we should. But in those moments, can't we be thankful for just how good that God has been to allow us the capacity to taste and to enjoy that food as we do? We appreciate those that prepare it and can do it with such exquisite skill. But as we participate in it and enjoy it, notice the psalmist said, Who satisfieth thy mouth. The satisfaction that comes from appreciating that means of taking in that food. You'll notice that as we bless God for that, that relates to offering a prayer of thanksgiving for the food that we enjoy. Jesus seemingly had that very idea in mind in Matthew 6, didn't he? When himself, he taught his own disciples a prayer that read like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. We won't finish the prayer, but we notice, give us this day our daily bread, a petition unto God in earnestness for the provision of the food that we need on a daily basis. How often do we find Jesus, in fact, offering a prayer as He proceeded to take a meal on that occasion when He fed the 5,000? What did the Lord do before He broke the loaves and the fishes? There in John chapter 6. There was a prayer offered of thanksgiving for that food. When he fed the 4,000, what again was done as preparation was made to break the items to feed that large host? Again, a word of prayer was uttered. Does that indicate, does it teach us that we, as we forget not all the benefits of God, should be ever ready to offer a prayer of appreciation, a prayer of thanksgiving for the food with which we participate? Certainly that would seem to not at all be inappropriate. As we think about that avenue of thanksgiving, doesn't it lead us to this? That verse, verse 5, closes in a very unusual way. I say unusual for it says, So that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. The verse had begun with a description of appreciating food, the nourishment that it provides and God's provision of it. But then it appears as a, a transition to describing youth compared to an eagle. What's the lesson there for you and for me? What might be asserted? What could be helpful? I'm told by those who have advanced to greater age that sometimes foods don't seem to taste quite the same as when you're younger. I suppose maybe that's so. I haven't quite reached that point myself. I still like to eat. And it still tastes good to me. But I know my own grandparents and great-grandparents have shared that things do seemingly take a bit different taste as one advances in great age. It would seem that this verse helps us see that no matter what the age, whether it tastes so abundantly good as it may have done in earlier days, there is still, there is still a propriety in blessing God for it in comparison to an eagle. It would seem that the idea behind the eagle is this. An eagle is able to molt each year. Its feathers are renewed. The livelihood of its exterior is renewed. And in that sense, there's a renewal from one year to the next. 
And there's always a continuing abundance of refreshness with that eagle's exterior. Could it be that the psalmist is reminding us that whether young or old, middle-aged or anywhere else, we should ever be ready, even with regard to food, to thank God for it? Isn't it still true that there are many who have not near as much as we when it comes to that? It is with all that in mind, I would ask you to close that slide by recalling with me the sweetness of the eagle's comparison in texts like Isaiah 40, 31. There you and I are taught that we can run and not grow weary. We can in fact proceed and not faint in light of the power of God compared to that of the eagle. It may be in light of all of that that these final statements are in order. A conclusion to Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. I would assert that tonight we have seen a number of tremendous things for which we can be very thankful to God. That list begins with forgiveness, being able to thank Him for the opportunity to have all my sins and all my iniquities wiped completely free. But you'll notice the list quickly continues, not just forgiveness, but the very attributes of salvation itself, being redeemed from destruction, the characteristic attached to the great mercy of God expressed in these passages. Then we notice in verses 4 and 5, the sweet loving kindness and mercy of God as seen in the very food we eat and the satisfaction of the physical body day by day. Tonight, may we close in the same way we began. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. If maybe you have tended to forget His benefits, why not strive to fix that error? Recognize the powerful need to lean upon God in all ways. And strive not to forget all that God has done for you. That begins by asking, are you a child of God? If you're not, then much of this psalm doesn't mean much practically to you right now. For you yet haven't been redeemed from destruction. You are still headed to that place of destruction. If you have reached an age of knowing wrong from right, you know that Christ's blood was shed for you, but at this point you have rebelled against it. Don't continue in that state. Why not come rushing to the side of your master? Why not this very night confess your faith in Him? That begins as you express belief in Him, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. If you've done that, but in the days since that moment, since the time you came forth from the watery grave of baptism, you have begun to forget. Maybe you've forgotten what it was like to be enamored in sin. Why not remember it tonight? Consider the case in which you now are. And again, may I urge you to rush to the side of your master. If we could help you tonight by praying with you and for you, why not ask us, encourage us to do that? We'd be happy to oblige. If tonight we could be of help to you in any way, may we use Psalm 103 as a serious encouragement to praise God for all His benefits to us. Tonight, if we could be of help to you, why not come while together we stand while we sing?